You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the January 2021 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast during the pandemic. Please stay healthy. Now I want to introduce you to a slight change in editor's picks. Beginning with this edition, I will be interviewing the lead or senior author of one of the articles that I have chosen for the month. This will be followed by my usual brief summary of the other four articles. Hope you enjoy the new format. So I'd like to begin my selection for the month of January 2010, uh, 2021. Uh, I live in the past, it's okay. The article is entitled Improving Hydroxychloroquine Dosing and Toxicity Screening at a Tertiary Ambulatory Center, a Quality Improvement Initiative, in, and is by Kofikar and colleagues from the Division of Rheumatology, Women's College Hospital, University of Toronto. And today I'm pleased to be speaking with Dr. Natasha Dackel, who is a senior author of the paper. Natasha, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me and to our listeners about your very topical article about using a quality improvement initiative to improve adherence to guidelines for the use of hydroxychloroquine. Thank you so, for inviting me. No, my pleasure, absolutely. So let's begin. First question is, could you briefly review the design rationale and highlight the important findings of your article? Yeah, so thank you for choosing the paper for this new feature of the podcast. I'm excited to talk about our study. Um, As a background, there are guidelines from the American Association of Ophthalmology and the British Society of Rheumatology focusing on recommendations for appropriate hydroxychloroquine dosing and toxicity monitoring. However, despite these guidelines, there is data to show that there is poor adherence to safe and effective dosing of hydroxychloroquine. There have been several studies that report between 35 and 55% of patients are still receiving doses in excess of the recommendation maximum. And though this is decreasing over time, there's evidence that at least 30% of patients are still receiving doses above the recommendations. The studies looking at adherence to retinopathy screening are better, showing approximately 80 to 85% adherence in some studies. However, in other studies, this was as low as 50%. So with that background in mind, the objective of our study was to characterize the frequency of appropriate weight-based hydroxychloroquine dosing and retinal screening in our clinics at Women's College Hospital here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The second objective was to develop quality improvement interventions aimed at improving these rates. One of the things with all quality improvement work, even if you have a strong literature base to show the frequency or rate of events you are studying, you always wanna study the baseline data locally in in your institution or practice to confirm that there is a gap that needs to be addressed. This step is important because any intervention you will implement will be in that local environment. So we undertook a retrospective chart review to obtain some baseline data on how we prescribe hydroxychloroquine in our practice, how often we document weight, and how often we uh, we document retinal screening. 
Our primary aim was to increase the percentage of patients who were appropriately dosed on hydroxychloroquine. And our secondary aim was to increase the percentage of documented retinal screening. Our preliminary uh, retrospective chart review revealed that our patients were prescribed hydroxychloroquine based on their weight about 30% of the time. And we were documenting retinal screening about 59% of the time. We use quality improvement methodology, in particular, plan, do, study, act cycles or PDSA cycles to implement three interventions. We first implemented a, a paper-based hydroxychloroquine dosing chart that was available in all the exam rooms to facilitate prescribing. Our second intervention was adding weight scales to patient rooms to facilitate patients being weighed. And our third intervention was introducing an EMR forced function where we were required to document the weight and a dose would auto-populate based on that weight. And if there was no weight documented in the EMR, you would not be able to print off a prescription for hydroxychloroquine. After these simple interventions, we had improved appropriate hydroxychloroquine dosing from 30% to 89%, and we improved retinal screening uh, documentation by approximately 33%. I hope you enjoyed the interview that I had with Dr. Gockel about her article, Improving Hydroxychloroquine Dosing and Toxicity Screening at a Tertiary Care Ambulatory Center, a Quality Improvement Initiative. Now I will return to my usual format. Next article I wanna highlight is entitled, Tofacinative Persistence. In patients with rheumatoid arthritis, a retrospective cohort study by Fisher on behalf of the Canadian Network of Observational Drug Studies. In this retrospective study, the investigators compared the persistence of tofacitinib with the persistence of an injectable biological DMARD or BDMARD in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They used the IBM Market Scan Research Database to identify 1,031 new users of tofacitinib and 17,803 new users of ABDMARD. The new tofacitinib users had a shorter median medication persistence at 0.81 years as a compared to a median of just over one year for new users of a BDMAR. This resulted in a hazard ratio for discontinuation of tofacitinib at 1.14 when compared to a BDMAR. In contrast, when they examined the use of either tofacitinib or a second biologic DMAR, and then followed the following the discontinuation of the initial biologic DMARD, they found that patients who switched to tofacinib rather than a second BDMARD had a longer persistence with an, an adjusted hazard ratio for discontinuation of 0.9. Please read this article to see how this study compares to previous studies and the reasons the authors hypothesize for the lower rate of persistence of tofacitinib 
as compared to a biologic DMARD, despite the fact that it is an oral medication versus an injectable. The next article to highlight is tumor necrosis factor inhibitor monotherapy versus combination therapy for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. Combined analysis of, human, of European biologics databases and is by Thomas and colleagues. In this paper, the authors investigated if a combination of an anti-TNF agent with a conventional synthetic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, or so-called CSDMARD, was more effective and or improved the anti-TNF drug survival as compared to anti-TNF monotherapy alone in patients with psoriatic arthritis. To achieve this goal, they examined a total of 2,294 patients with PSA from five different cohorts from five different countries who were treated with a biologic DMARD. In all of the five cohorts, more patients were treated with combination rather than monotherapy. Drug survival varied among the cohorts, although combination patients had a greater drug survival than those on monotherapy alone in four of five cohorts. The authors did not find a significant difference in the rate of change of the DAS-28 or the HAC between the monotherapy cohort and the combination therapy cohort. Please read this article to find out if a biologic DMARDing combination with a CSDMARD affected the outcome and the advantages and disadvantages of the monotherapy versus combination therapy in patients with PSA. The next article to highlight is entitled The Challenge of Early Systemic Sclerosis, a combination of mild and early disease and is by Blaha and colleagues. The diagnosis of early systemic sclerosis can be challenging, and it is frequently difficult to differentiate patients who will progress into clinically significant systemic sclerosis from those who will not progress. To address this important issue, the authors of this paper examined 102 patients re referred to the single center who did not fulfill either the 2013 ACR, ULAR, or the 1980 ACR classification criteria, the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis was based on the presence of Raynaud's and additional features of systemic sclerosis. Although 54% of the patients had a disease duration of less than five years, 29% of the cohort had a disease duration of greater than 10 years. The investigators did not find any difference between the patients with early progressive disease and those with long-standing mild disease 
regarding clinical features of presentation. Although this is a disappointment, please read this article to better understand the difficulty in managing patients with very early systemic sclerosis. The last article to highlight is entitled Phenylalanine is a novel biomarker for radiographic knee osteoarthritis progression. The most studied it is by Zaha and colleagues. The investigators used a targeted metallobolomics approach to identify markers of disease progression in patients with OA. To achieve this goal, they divided their patients into two cohorts, one with unilateral knee OA and the second with bilateral knee OA. After follow-up of, of 30 months, the cohorts were then divided into progressors and non-progressors. Metabolic profiling was performed on 157 metabolites which were collected at baseline. Logistic regression was performed to test the association between each metabolite and the OA progression. And the group with unilateral NEOA, they identified six metabolites that were associated with progression. Well, in, in the group with bilateral NEOA, 17 metabolites were associated with progression. However, phenylalanine was the only metabolite that was associated with progression of NEOA in both groups. Interestingly, this associate was seen in women, but not men. Please read this article to learn more about how metabolomics may give us insight into the pathogenesis of OA, and if this biomarker could be used as a surrogate marker for NEOA progression in clinical studies. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the January 2021 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print or online edition, which is available at www.jroom.com. Also, please watch the full interview with Dr. Gakal regarding the highlighted article entitled Improving Hydroxychloroquine Dosing and Toxicity Screening at a Tertiary Care Ambulatory Center, a Quality Improvement Initiative, which is available at the above-named website and on YouTube. In addition, I hope you will view review the interviews I have had with senior authors of selected COVID-19 articles, which are also available for viewing on our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. We are particularly interested in your comments on the new format of the podcast, with an interview with the senior author of one of the highlighted articles. Please listen next month to the February edition 
of editor's highlights where I will again continue with our new feature highlighting one of the articles. Please stay healthy in these very trying times and to a better 2021. Thank you.